My ambition after that trip to the Highlands was simply to see if Tasmania could make a really good single malt whiskey. We don't expect everyone to like these wines, so yes, there's some risk. Drink more sherry, because that's when you can really educate yourself on what happens in maturation. The thing is with Australian that is you put them in a gin, the aftertaste invariably is just bitter and unpalatable. I think the Irish whiskey landscape is going to be wildly different over the next five years. This is the Drinks Adventures podcast. I'm James Atkinson, and this is the show where I speak to some of the world's most exciting producers of beer, wine and spirits, and uncover trends and issues in the drinks industry today. Welcome back to the Drinks Adventures podcast for 2023. If you've been with me on the show since the beginning, you'll recall a brilliant chat back in season one with winemaker and brewer Janice McDonald, who at that time was chief winemaker at Howard Park in Margaret River. Janice recently joined her partner, Stuart Pym, at his boutique winery, Flowstone, and they're both with us this episode as we hear all about the rekindling of their exciting winemaking partnership. Janice, I think it must be about four years since um, you joined me in one of the very first episodes of the show, and here we are, 160-something episodes later. Was it always on the cards that you would eventually join Stuart at Flowstone? Well, I guess, um, in a sense, I've, I've always been involved at Flowstone. Um, it's a bit hard not to when it's sort of your backyard. However, in the time that I was at Howard Park, obviously um, I wasn't to have any sort of, you know, real sort of connection or public connection with Flowstone. So I've always been in the background, but certainly uh, Stuart was very much sort of front of house for Flowstone. Maybe Stuart, you know, for those who aren't too familiar with the winery, maybe you could just give us a bit of a um, overview on, you know, the, the journey to date with Flowstone. Flowstone in the scheme of Margaret River wineries and wine brands is a fairly young thing. We got into the marketplace at the end of 2013 and if you think that Vas Felix and Cullen have recently celebrated their 50th, we're fairly young in the scheme of things, but I mean, Janice and I have both been making wine in the area for some time. What it really is, it's me getting back into the wine business for the reason I got into it in the initial place and to make wine. A lot of my previous jobs were winery manager slash winemaker where 75% of the job is winery manager. Well, this is actually making wine and making wine in styles that I particularly enjoy. We live on a rural property here and we actually bought the property in 2003 and planted uh, a little bit of vineyard in 2008 and then actually built a house and moved in to live on the property in 2013, which is also when we started making the wines here as well. So when Janice says the vineyard is our backyard, it pretty much is. You're sort of known for having broken the mould a little bit with some of the styles that you make, which I think you sort of alluded to there. You, you know, you're not wedded to just making single variety wines from purely the, you know, the regional flagships. Some of those flagships are certainly there, but there are other, I guess, more left field varieties. But I guess also the wines that we make are in very much the classic style rather than some of the other very fashionable styles around at the moment. I think it's sort of more along the lines of perhaps not necessarily chasing or following the contemporary style, which tends to be uh, you know, somewhat leaner than, than the Flowstone Chardonnay. I guess both Stuart and I have always been big fans of the expression of 
of ripe varietal fruit notes. And that's what we like to see, particularly in something like Chardonnay. We think malolactic is an important part of our style. It doesn't have to drive it, but it, it's a complexing character. We're still using small format oak in the Chardonnay, not that that's something that might not change. So I think from the point of view of, of being, you know, perhaps more traditional, conventional, and even how we grew up with wine, and sticking to that style and allowing our vineyard to fully ripen the fruit and allow that ripe fruit to, to express in our wines. Again, referring back to Chardonnay that, you know, we've sort of the pendulum sort of swung wildly from the big ripe sort of buttery ones, which were, you know, a lifetime ago to the extraordinary sort of lengths of, you know, very, very lean. I guess we've always tried, we've gone down that middle ground. We haven't really chased those styles. We've just tried to be, uh, allow our vineyard to really be expressive of what it grows. You're not 100% estate grown, I would assume, given how sort of young that, that vineyard is? No, we're not. We do also lease a vineyard in Caradale, which is another 15 minutes further south from here. And we have subsequently planted another small vineyard on our property, which does give us some of the slightly left field varieties. The young vineyard we have does have Gewurztraminer and Tarega planted on it. We're essentially in control of probably 75 to 80% of the grapes we use. Sure. And, and Janice, you know, what appealed to you in moving to Flowstone? And was it also sort of about being a little bit more hands-on than maybe you were there at Howard Park? As you would well imagine and as you would well know, that the role at Howard Park was, you know, a very, a very big job. You know, something like that is was really all-consuming from a time point of view. You know, I, I would leave in the dark and get home in the dark most, most sort of days of the week, really. I really wanted to, to move away from that. Uh, you know, at a time, you know, neither of us are particularly young anymore, at a time when I could afford to, in a sense, you know, we, we own this property, uh, you know, so it's, you know, we've invested heavily in, in it. We don't have a lot of debt over things. So, so it was a, a, a good time for me to be able to move, I guess, be more prominent in Flowstone and also be more helpful. You know, from the time, you know, if I go back a little bit to the, you know, Stella Bella days, you know, starting a new brand was something we did sort of pretty, you know, innocently and naively, but it worked quite well and it was probably a little bit new and different at the time. I think today it, it takes much more effort, perhaps innovation, and uh, to actually, you know, keep your position in the market because it is, it is a far more crowded market than it ever used to be. So there's a lot of, you know, sales and marketing support that's required for a small brand to be able to survive. As you said, you have actually worked together quite closely on, on Stella Bella and, and also Suck Fizzle as well prior to that, is that right? Yeah, we started with the, the Suck Fizzle brand when we actually leased a vineyard. We leased that vineyard in 96 and the first vintage of the Suck Fizzle was 97 and then we started the Stella Bella brand in 2000. But prior to that, we brewed beer together as well. Yep. Well, you know I like talking about beer as well, Janice, so I was going to come on to that. <laughs> So I know very much about your brewing role at Matilda Bay. What about yours, Stuart? I was a worker in the brewery and Janice was my boss. And that's how you met each other? No. Not quite. We no. actually were both involved in wine before that. If we go a long way back, I first met Janice when I started my winemaking studies in 1983. She was a tutor. And not long after that, Janice was doing a vintage at Vas Felix, I think maybe 85, maybe? Yeah. And my parents had a little vineyard and winery just around the corner from Vas Felix up in Willyabra, and I was helping them out. So we sort of bumped into each other then as well. 
we were both at Matilda Bay, but when the Redback Brewery was built in, in Melbourne, Stuart and I moved to Melbourne to run that brewery. And we also had a, a short stint down in Hobart at the St. Ives. St Ives Hotel, which had a little brewery. Stuart was much more in control of that one and, and I was in Melbourne. So we've sort of worked side by side in brewing for, for quite a long time. Janice, are you still uh, mashing in down at um, the Settler's Arms? That's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah, Settler's Tavern. No, unfortunately, uh, the business was sold and, uh, yeah, the brewery was sort of dismantled and put aside to be sort of, you know, put back together at some point, but that hasn't really happened yet. So I miss it. I really do miss it. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether I'll, I'll get back to brewing. I'd like to think that will happen, but, but no, not at the moment. I can find vineyard work for her in the interim. <laughs> I don't know whether you've watched with interest as Phil gets the Matilda Bay brand back on track and I believe he's looking for a site over on your side of the country. Nothing would surprise me about him. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what are your plans for the winery moving forward? You, you must have plans to grow and continue to expand the brand with Janice coming on board. It's certainly there are discussions about it. We don't have any concrete and definitive plans at this stage. Um, there certainly there are upsides to growing and there are downsides to growing. What it becomes in management and control and, and ultimately selling it as well. That's always the interesting bit about winemaking. You still have to sell it. You can make a wine that you really enjoy, but it's unlikely we can drink it all ourselves. <laughs> I have grander plans, of course. We haven't got a cellar door on this property and I'm, I'm keen to put a cellar door on here. You know, maybe repurposed out of um, shipping containers is, is one of my ideas. We've got some sort of a pegged out area to plant a bit more vineyard. At the moment, whilst the, you know, sort of the Riverland areas might be suffering from an oversupply of grapes, what's happening with fruit and particularly Chardonnay in Margaret River, it's a bit like buying a house. You know, you can put an offer in and your offer may or may not be accepted if it's, it's crazy that Chardonnay is, you know, selling for three and a half thousand dollars a tonne, if not more in this region, and it's in scarce supply. So hence that's a reason to, to put a bit more Chardonnay in. So that's sort of the plan and also you know, trying to sort of get more sort of direct sales you know, and have more direct sales channels available to us. To us. And I do think that Celador will, will help with that. But we're also, um, James, we're also control freaks to a degree. We try to sort of do as much of the work that we can on, on the property in the vineyards and also in, you know, how we manage the whole business. So. We do want to keep it a manageable size that doesn't end up requiring sort of, you know, the employment of lots and lots of, of people. So we, we're very mindful of having worked in big businesses. We don't want to go there. We don't sort of really need to go there, but, we, you know, we do have plans and, and we, we do want to make the brand more, more prominent and have a better profile. But still keep it personal and personable. One thing I actually really enjoy about being such a tiny little business is, say, for the the very small makes like a queen of the earth wines, which are grown on the property. The wines get made in the shed next to the house. For these very small batches, they get bottled in there on a, on a manual little bottle filler and screw capper. So the first time they actually leave the property is when someone buys them. And it's amazing what level of connection you get between a product where you grow it, you make it, you bottle it and you sell it. There's not many businesses where one people do the whole lot, do the whole chain. So it's, it's, it's very fulfilling. 
Do you think there's a sweet spot with, you know, how big you can build a, a brand at a winery, perhaps in terms of like cases a year, if you're going direct to consumer? Like is there, is there a sweet spot where, where it's sort of manageable and viable but not getting away from you, if you know what I mean? I don't think we know what that is yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, it, it's not definitive. It will vary a lot on who, where and why. Are you fairly um, West Coast centric at the moment? Is the, is the plan to sort of really expand your wines over this side of the country? We are quite West Coast centric. We do have distribution in on the East Coast, but it's not particularly strong at the moment, although it has been there for quite some time. And that's going to be a, a re-engagement process, you know, sort of be more prominent. It's certainly something that, you know, obviously got put on hold over the last couple of years. But we do have a presence. I think one of the wines I've heard a lot about is the is the Moon Milk Stuart. Maybe you could talk to how you came up with that really interesting blend. This is the Moon Milk White Ice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, there's a red as well, is there? I did mean the white, yeah. That was a wine, the blend came up with no particular planning. It was just fortuitous. I stumbled across this bit of uh, Sauvignon, that, a vineyard that I was familiar with from other jobs, and I thought I'd buy some of that and see what it's like. I had no idea what it was all about. And then when it came to making the blend, I mean, I've just bought a few other little bits of odds and sods around the place. I guess it was about just being sort of quirky but eminently enjoyable. If I can make a comment there, um, James, if you've been lucky enough to taste that wine, uh, what to me it does exhibit is a real signature of what Stuart likes to do in what, with wines and what he enjoys is in wines, and that is he's very good at building texture in wines and the particular varieties that, that end up in that wine, which can be Pinot Gris, Viognia, Sauvignon, as Stuart said, Gewürztraminer, bit of Sauvignon Blanc, just depends sort of what, what we can sort of access. And, and those varieties sort of lend themselves to that sort of technique. And uh, you know, I've always been impressed at how Stuart's sort of intuitive nature and behaviour when it comes to how he approaches winemaking really shows through in that wine. Is it a similar approach with the red uh, moon milk? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I guess it is more of a... The moon milk red is a blend of primarily Shiraz and Grenache, so that's obviously a, that's a classic blend. There is a little splash of Viognier in there, just lighten it a little bit without diluting it. But again, that's not something I've come up with. There are other parts in the world that put Viognier with their Shiraz. So, yeah, I, I guess it was just about, again, making a wine that is enjoyable and casual and fun, but lots of flavour and presence. It is a blend that's classic elsewhere in the world, but not so prominent in your part, neck of the woods. You know, we don't hear too much about Grenache from Margaret River. No, there's not. A, I mean, I think we've all learnt that Margaret River's strength is not Shiraz. There are other parts of Western Australia that do Shiraz better um, and more profoundly. But again, this, this Moon Milk wine isn't, is about being a casual, enjoyable wine. It's, it's not demanding people to sit down and pontificate while they've got the glass in hand. Tell us about some of the other wines in the range. I know that, you know, you're a real Cabernet nut, Janice, so are you, um, are you pleased with the Cabernets that Stuart's been making at Flowstone to date? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm pleased with them. I mean, we are working on a, on a sort of relatively southern site. They're going to be a little bit finer than, than sort of Abra. Probably the interesting variety, or maybe a better word would be the more challenging variety that we've we've worked with has, is Tariga. And, you know, why do we plant Tariga? Well, we, we both kind of love vintage port and, and, and the flavour 
it, I guess we discovered with a drinking vintage port, you know, with Tariga in it and also then having Tariga as a table wine, you actually discover that the real flavour of Tariga and how much it drives the flavour of vintage port. I sort of thought, always thought, you know, vintage port was, you know, probably about the spirit and that was used in it more so than the flavour of the grapes, but I, I've discovered otherwise. So quite fascinated with that. But when we planted it, we discovered that it's a very unruly variety. It, uh, you know, unlike uh, the other grape varieties such as Cabernet and Chardonnay, Tariga just likes to do it its own thing. So it has been a bit of a challenge in the vineyard, but, you know, that's, that's been part of the fun of growing it. And we're really quite pleased with the results. Again, there's a lovely perfume from this more southern southern side. Stuart should speak about Gewurz Tremina because that is certainly his baby. Oh, I just like it. It's got so much personality and aromatics and distinctive characters. It's certainly not subtle or delicate, but does have a lot of personality. From day one with Flowstone, we used to buy some Gewurz Tremina from some vines planted in the late 70s in Margaret River, um, but that vineyard got sold at the beginning of 2020, so we lost access to those grapes. But a few years prior to that, we had planted some in our, our young vineyard here because we felt we should take our control of our own destiny. Um, and the 2021 Gewurz Tremino that is currently available is actually the first wine off that vineyard. I already love it. It's just got so much, as I said, personality. I was um, at an event in Perth on the weekend, you know, sort of a, a, a public tasting event, and it's a good wine from the point of view because people look at it and, of course, they can't pronounce it. So, you know, you can immediately engage with them over the name and the story. And, of course, as you would know, when you taste it, it's it's just like nothing most people have tasted. And, again, being very textural, you know, it's a lovely thing to, you know, to drink and have in your mouth. So it's a, it's a lovely point of difference. Is there much of a market for fortified wines like the, the vintage Turiga these days? I wouldn't say it's not a big market. That wine came about just via serendipity. Um, I never had any plans to make a fortified wine, but in 2018, which was a particularly good vintage here, on our little bit of Tarega we planted in our older vineyard, the rocky end, of, the grapes off the rocky end of the vineyard didn't fit in the same little fermenter as the rest of it, so I got fermented separately, and then I pressed it separately and put it in a barrel. And at the end of vintage, I was just tasting through what we had there, and I tasted this one barrel, and I thought, should that taste like vintage port? So I sent a sample off to the local laboratory to get measured and it was 16.9% alcohol and 20 grams of sugar still, so it was halfway to being vintage port. And that's when I decided to do something I'd never done in my life before and make a fortified wine. So I bought some brandy spirit, fortified it up, left it in barrel for two years and put it in little bottles. <laughs> but again, it's not something that we do every year. It's sort no. of, you know, they've got to be good vintages and you know, we, we made the 18, we've also made a 20. Uh, yeah, I think it works pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I say on the, on the tasting notes, I say the winemaker is serendipity. Janice, I know one of your favourite projects at Howard Park was sparkling wine. Is that possibly on the cards for Flowson at some point? I don't, I don't think we will go down that path. Um, it's a big financial investment, right? <laughs> oh, it's huge. And, you know, I, I do think there's, you know, sort of doing that on a small scale and, and from from where we are, I think certainly... Our Chardonnay is better purposed in our table wines than trying to go down that path. So as much as uh, I would like to, um, <laughs> we're not going to. Tell me about what you think the health of Margaret River as a region is like these days. You, you mentioned early on how, how competitive the industry had become. Oh, it's a booming little region. I mean, even from the beginning of COVID where people couldn't go holidaying anywhere else, 
the amount of tourists that came down here is amazing, but also just the the interest, but also appreciation of what this region does with wine is fantastic. It's getting that level of recognition around the world now. Um, so for this tiny little remote corner of Australia, it, it's certainly not taking a step back and you only have to look at real estate prices as well to see that. I think too that the, there's a, a great diversity of offerings in wine. I mean, mm. you know, there are people much younger than us that have done the brave thing that we did sort of 20, 30 years ago and started small wine brands. You know, they might be sort of very hands-off. They might be orange wines, natural wines, conventional wines. And it really does keep the, the region quite vibrant. We, we don't have a cellar door here, but we do offer sort of tastings by appointment. And what we do see is many people who are, are really quite wine savvy like to come to places, you know, like us and have a very, very personal tasting experience. They've done the, the big cellar doors and, uh, you know, and they've had that experience and they are looking for, uh, as I said, you know, diversity of offering. Us and, and other people like us around the region, you know, are offering sort of that diversity and, and people are seeking it out. The other thing that's happened too, there's been, we're south of Margaret River and, and as you would well know, sort of the heartbeat's always been Willie Abrupt and many cellar doors and, and very, very well known and, and then sort of north to Yelling Up because it's, you know, a lot closer to Dunsborough and, and bigger holiday population centres. But as, as small businesses have developed in the south, it's drawn people again south and again those different sort of the diversity of offerings that you, you, you get sort of down this way has really sort of... I think, kept people interested in Margaret River because I do think you do have to sort of evolve and, and, and have some diversity um, to keep people interested in, in coming. What else is uh, coming up for us to talk about? I guess um, the other thing that we, uh, from a wine perspective here, you know, sustainability has become very much sort of the, you know, I guess the hot word marketing-wise and, uh, and an increasing sort of... I guess, requirement from perhaps consumers that, that, you know, things are being done a little bit more sustainably. So, you know, we're undertaking sustainable, I guess, wine growing on our own property and, and going through that process with the with the AWRI. Um, and part of that process, it has sort of several, I guess, criteria you have to sort of, or fields that you have to work within. You know, some is water management, energy and power, and, and another one which I'm particularly interested in is, is sort of biodiversity and, and improvement of the land. So I'm, I'm working with Nature Conservation at the moment to um, sort of, you know, get an assessment of biodiversity on this property and then... Um, we have an area out the back of our property because we, we back onto the, the Lewin National Park and by the previous owner, it was planted to blue gums. Um, it's only a hectare. Yeah, it's only a small amount, fortunately. We had those removed several years ago and uh, I want a plan to, to rehabilitate that part of our, our property. I think it will be a very good thing for, for the property and also um, you know, an opportunity for, for me to learn a lot more about sort of conservation. Margaret River is one of the leaders from a participation point of view, which is, uh, yeah, quite interesting. And there's very strong push from the industry association to sort of, you know, set goals and try and get virtually every, you know, every grower uh, and winemaker in the region engaged and certified. But, you know, it's a very, very strong push uh, from, from the association here. 
and its members, obviously. What about the wine range? You know, do you see that, that you'll be creating some new wines as well, given this sort of renewed energy that Janice is going to bring to the partnership? <laughs> Maybe a beer, what do you think? <laughs> I could get that little brewery up and going again. I've got a big shed here. Yeah, when you get the cellar door open, you'll, you'd have uh, an extra reason for people to, to visit you and I'm sure Margaret River needs another brewery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, uh, personally, I don't see much else happening in the range. And I guess one thing we haven't discussed is one of the really identifying wines that Flashstone makes, and that is it's Sauvignon Blanc. And it's really from day one, it's been a passion of mine just to show people that Sauvignon Blanc can be serious and sophisticated. And when I'm making it, it's, it's in my mind's eye, more looking at the old world home of Sauvignon Blanc, more so than any new world expression. Uh, and it's good to see it starting to get a bit more recognition and awareness over the last, say, three to five years, that, that sort of more serious expression of Sauvignon Blanc. And certainly, the grapes come from, since we've been making it, they've always come from the same vineyard, but we now lease that vineyard, which does give us more control over the grapes and, and what it delivers. But, yeah, it's um, a bit of a challenge in some respects, but it's also like getting people to appreciate Sauvignon Blanc for what it can be. But it's also one of my passions, having visited Sancerre and Proufoumé several times and tasting out of barrels in the wineries and just understanding what it, what it can be. The Sauvignon Blanc that Stuart has made... The Queen of the Earth, which is sort of our top wine, um, it has won Best Sauvignon Blanc in the Halliday Awards four times in, what, nine entries. Is that right? The Queen um, of the Earth Sauvignon Blanc has got Best Sauvignon Blanc in the Halliday Awards three times out of the last four years, but also our first ever Sauvignon Blanc released under the Flowstone label, the 2011, got Best Sauvignon Blanc as well. So in, in that short time frame, which is, we'll be selling 21 now, so that's... Um, say 10 to 11 years, we've won Best Sauvignon Blanc four times. You know, and, and for me, I call this particular location that it comes from in Caradale, which is you know, five minutes south of here, it is climatically the sweet spot for Sauvignon Blanc in Margaret River. You know, Stuart does an incredible job. It, is, it, is, it does have oak influence, but we, we put it into 600 litre barrels. And none of them new, so it's yeah. not overt oak. Mm. It's more sort of subtle and background and, and textural. It's sort of... Nothing like that sort of nervous, sort of fruity Sauvignon Blanc that you know that we've we've come to all know well. It's much more sort of toned down, but great flavour, great length, beautiful presentation, and uh, you know I admire Stuart championing the variety and and what he's done with the wine because you know it is not easy. Sort of you know some varieties they get sort of. You know, they get a reputation. They get a reputation and, and it's difficult for people to see beyond sort of, you know, you know what the sort of, you know, the general market view of a certain wine is. And, and, you know, certainly Chardonnay had that for quite some time and Sauvignon Blanc, you know, still to a degree has that. But, again, if you get people to taste that wine and try it, they really do can appreciate just how complex and beautiful and also very long-lasting that wine can be. So we're both pretty passionate about Sauvignon Blanc. Queen of the Earth, is that sold out currently? I can't see that it's still available on your website. Yes, yes it is. Yeah, it is sold out. And, and what does that sell for when it's available? $55. Yeah, it's obviously a, a serious wine. There probably wouldn't be any other Sauvignon Blancs in Australia that would be, you know, in that sort of price bracket. 
Oh, there's a couple. I know when we first made it, I was tossing up to make it the most expensive Sauvignon Blanc in Australia, which I think the Lady A is the most expensive and it's about $85. But I figured if I did that, it would be disrespectful to the Queen of the Earth Chardonnay because they should be the same. So I've got them priced both the same now. But for Sauvignon Blanc, it is an expensive one, which is curious. For $55 for a Chardonnay, most people don't think it's that expensive. Sauvignon Blanc, probably people would be most familiar with it in Margaret River, being blended with Semillon as well, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, that, that style is a signature wine for the region. So I guess, again, this is stepping a little bit left field. But uh, I mean, going back in our history, we've, we've had a little bit of time of the championing, the serious Sauvignon Blanc Semillon blend with the, the uh, Suckfizzle white wine, which is very much modelled on a Bordeaux white. And the first one we made came a year after or just shortly after when I'd actually worked at Domaine de Chevalier in Bordeaux, so I stole some of their secrets. Fantastic. Well, um, Janice and Stuart, congratulations on taking your, you know, your partnership at Flowstone to the next level. And um, where can people find the wines? Is it mainly direct online is kind of the, the best avenue for them? Yeah, I mean, it's the easiest. I mean, you don't have to leave your home and they turn up at your front door. But they are available generally in sort of independent very much wine-focused type bottle shops and similarly with restaurants, very sort of serious wine-focused restaurants. 